Well, here we are with 2nd Isaiah. A little different from 1st Isaiah, and I wanted to start with your reactions or thoughts or questions, if we could. Well, um, it would be interesting to see the two perspectives, the Jewish perspective and the Christian perspective on, on these same things. Yeah. And you know whether they're like it or not. Then you have the triad of the Yahweh, who is, uh, who is the judgment and the deliverance. You have the Babylonians, which are bad social influence. Mm-hmm. You have Judah, which is the, com- the community of faith. And you can make the case that Babylon is a metaphor for <coughs> um, you know, our, our, over, our overuse of consumerism and demilitarism um, you know, that they have in the world today. Mm-hmm. And I wonder um, whether there, uh, for, for Yahweh chose Tyrus to deliver the Jewish people, and he was an outsider, and then he turns around 500 years later and picks Jesus, who is also an outsider, to save the Jewish people. I, now, I mean, I don't know if there's a connection between that. But it's kind of interesting. It's a great question. I would put to you, Jesus is definitely an insider. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, he's he's got um, strong Jewish credentials. Right. <laughs> Whereas Cyrus... His zero Jewish credentials. The outsider bit we should talk about here, though, with the servant songs and the suffering servant idea, that for sure. And I think what you raise is a really great idea, which is sometimes when Christians, when Christians read this, they say, oh, it's all about Jesus. Right. And if we read it with a Jewish mentality, I actually think it would enrich our understanding of Jesus instead of pretending like this is predicting him to read what this is saying at the time mm-hmm. and and then see how Jesus resonates with it. Does, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Instead of it being a one-to-one map, if it's analogical thinking, that's a really different relationship. And then it, it seems that uh, we're combining history. I mean, we're, Yahweh is being active in history a lot more than it has in the past. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks. Anybody else? <coughs> well, sorry. No, no. I kind of thought. No, I. I think it was interesting that whenever the Jews in desert gives them water. And we use water for baptism, and so the theme of water seems to always be there. And water is a funny theme. Uh, it's really worth exploring. This is maybe I, I can't resist myself jumping in here. Um, there's so many images here that are just so rich, and we often miss them. But this guy, to me, is probably the kind of artist I most appreciate. I mean. 
Ezekiel is like, he, I don't know, he's like um, some kind of super countercultural performance artist. And this guy, to me, has got these images uh, that are, in some ways, they're countercultural, but they're not slams. They're they're like they're like visions to pursue instead of like hammering your forehead against what we're doing. That's that's it's so creative and life giving. It's life so creative, and, yes. And there's nobody like this. And and this is why scholars tell you this is a different author from chapters 1 through 39 because 1 through 39 doesn't have this stuff and then you know when we get to to chapter 56 through 65 that's a different one too it doesn't have this stuff so they say there's three isaiahs and this one we're going to call deutero isaiah which means second so good reminder deuteronomy means second law because it is it's exodus repeated um but some of these images are really, really interesting, like the bit about water. And, you know, there's some, like, if you grew up in contemporary Christian culture or whatever, there's a, like, a praise song that says something like, when you pass through the water, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, you won't be burned. It's really interesting because um, water in that, in that isn't a wonderful, comforting thing. Not like, this is not like splashing in a pool or going to Six Flags over Texas and having that spray come down and cool you off, right? And, and this is where we sometimes forget that water in the Bible almost always means chaos. Um, not evil, necessarily, but, but chaos. And, and if I can unpack it a little bit, particularly because we think about baptism, um, when you read Genesis chapter 1, when God goes to make the world... It's not creation out of nothing. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was over the waters. There's this like, primeval chaos. The way I tell it to our kids is imagine that you took 124 crayons and colored all over each other. It would just be a mess, right? And then if you read Genesis, what happens is God separates light from dark. God separates water from sky. God separates earth from water. It's like God pulls out every color so it can be distinct instead of a gooey mess, right? So when you ask rabbis, where does evil come from? The answer is, well, look, God started with chaos and God pulled order out of it. So what does God do? God always pulls order out of chaos. Well, where did the evil and chaos come from? The Bible doesn't tell us the answer to that. <laughs> if God started with zero, nothing, then God made the chaos. But that's not the implication of Genesis. God starts with something already. How did it get there? No one knows. But what God does is makes order out of it. So now you get to baptism, right? Which we usually think of as this really sweet thing and water is life-giving and nourishing. And honestly, when I tell kids about it, I always try to use the frame of what we do in church is take ordinary stuff and expect God to do something extraordinary with it, right? So if, if regular wine and bread nourishes your body alone, 
then this wine and bread will not only do that, but nourish your spirit. So then we think, okay, what does water do, right? We use water to clean ourselves off, especially in Texas, we use water to cool ourselves down. We need water to be hydrated, and water is the sink for growth, right? So when we talk to kids, this is usually what I say about baptismal water, it's meant to wash off anything that's bothering you between you and God, whether that's sin or doubt or worry. Um, it's meant to refresh you. <laughs> uh, it's meant to uh, be a reminder that all of this business is for growth. But at the time of Jesus, when Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan, if you see the Jordan now, it's a muddy, dirty trickle. Although when we went, the water was really high, so much so that you couldn't even get in it, right? We went to Jordan after it had been raining, and you weren't allowed to get in the Jordan. Um, so it depends. The Jordan was fickle, quite honestly. If there'd been a lot of rain or snow melting up at Mount, because it does snow there at Mount Hermon, and the water was gushing, it could have swept you away. Unlike Texas, and unlike modern times where, I mean, to me, if your kids don't know how to swim, you, you really should reconsider your parenting style here in Texas. There's so much water, it's important for kids to be able to swim. But see, they're landlocked people, they don't have cars. Um, sw swimming is a relatively new preoccupation of ours, right? So if you can't swim and and there's this tumultuous water, it could sweep you away, it can wash away your crops. On the one hand, water is what you need to live. On the other hand, like in this climate, when it rains a lot, water is really dangerous. So here comes John the Baptist, and we don't know the water level when he's baptizing people. It could have been raging and torrential. It could have been low, but John is sticking people under the water. And a way to think about baptism is, it's the symbol of chaos. And we say this when we, when we do this. Paul says this, we'll read it in Romans chapter 6, that baptism is like dying and then coming up again. When you go under the water, you're going completely under the chaos and you're coming out to live a new life. So this, this interesting symbol of, of water is that it's life-giving, but another image that we get, even for our own baptism, right, is that um, God is not uh, making everything easy. We're coming out of chaos, and we could spend our life trying not to resist it, but no, the Christian life is to go under it and come out different. <laughs> And being born again, right? And that's where you get that imagery. Yeah, but you're, you're in the womb, you're not, you're surrounded by water. And so, maybe that's what they were trying to do with the baptism. Um, it's really interesting. I, I actually wrote a thesis on this when I was an undergrad student about baptism. And there was there's concern about uh, river demons and water spirits as well. And going underwater is actually exposing yourself to unclean spirits was the idea. So John is the first person we know of that came up with baptism. Jewish brothers and sisters had been ritually immersing themselves in these things called mikvahs for a long time, but that wasn't 
quite the same as what John does. See, the mikvah is supposed to wash off any um, sort of ritual uncleanliness. Not sin, but like you, you ate something that wasn't kosher or you accidentally touched a dead body or somebody with a birthmark touched you. <laughs> so this is to wash that off. And some people were doing that four or five times a day, sometimes in these big jars, sometimes in baths under their house. Now they didn't, the water wasn't always running though. So you, you think these are dirty people, they get in the same water over and over and over again. It's like getting in the Ganges and saying that it cleaned you. John, you don't do this to yourself. John is shoving people into the water and he says, I'm gonna do it once and you're done. And that's new. But I think in some ways, John, what John does is takes Isaiah kind of very literally, which is you're going to pass through the waters and I'll make something new out of you. So this is, that dog, let it go. This, this is where it's an interesting Christian symbol. So this is what's gonna happen when we get to the New Testament times is that instead of circumcision being your entrance rite, it's going to be baptism. And circumcision will end up becoming irrelevant but I but it's interesting to unpack what water means and you see it here and and you get to hear things like God is going to dry up the sea well that would be terrible but of course it's not literal the sea is like where all the evil is and, and it's they didn't think the world was round sorry they didn't they thought the world was flat and that there was water underneath it chaos and there was water above it so we're kind of sandwiched between chaos we're this little bit of order and the mountains are holding up the dome of the sky and whatever so um, if we read this literally we would not be taking it seriously we uh when we were in peru uh we met a woman shaman yeah and her husband had passed away but when he left, he went into the water, and he comes to visit her every day. And when she passes away, she will go back to the spirit in the water because that's where her parents came from. It's interesting. Yeah. And, she, and she speaks of that to total strangers, you know, as as, as if it, it were fact, and, and 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 for her it is fact. Um, and she's just waiting to return, because that's where her family is. If you watch the Game of Thrones, there's this isle nation called Pike, and the Pike people worship the drowned god, and part of their rite of passage is that you get drowned and resuscitated, and they say what is dead can, can never die. And that sounds funny, but I think that's similar here, is what Paul's going to say is, you go under the water and you your old identity has to die. Not just change a little bit. The, our mentality is not supposed to get a tune-up with the gospel. It's supposed to die so that God can <laughs> give birth to a new brain in your head. That's the interesting thing. That's why I think prosperity gospel does not work. Because it's tuning up what we already think. Instead of it dying. I talked way too much about water, but I do want you to know why we use a shell, right? The shell, there weren't, you can go to the 
to the Jordan River, and there's little shells, by the way. But John the Baptist did not use a shell to baptize anybody. He shoved people under the water. What about babies? He didn't baptize babies. Nobody baptized babies until 400. So where do we get the shell? You know, the oldest pilgrimage site, Jerusalem, but next to it is Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Pilgrims went there for a long time, like even in the early 500s, and they thought Spain was on the edge of the world. Like if you got in a boat and rowed, you might fall off the world. So it was a journey literally to the end of the world, and there people were either baptized or they were sort of remembered their baptism, and they brought these shells back as souvenirs of having gone to the end of the world. <laughs> and so shells started getting used in their parishes by their priests as a symbol for the, 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 the figurative journey that when you go to baptism, you've gone off the world. <laughs> we have, we've done Compostela, and I did the entire, the, the entire thing. The whole 400-something yeah. miles, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's quite a moving experience. Did you get a shell? I had a shell. I wore a shell. I had a shell. But this is where it's from. Yeah, you you yeah. journeyed to the yeah. end of the world, and then you come back. Yeah. yeah. And I frankly, I didn't know a lot about the some of what you referred to. Um, it, it can become very intimate if, when you, if you do that, and mm -hmm. you go through as you're at a time in your life when there's some big changes happening, and you don't have much control, and you just turn that over to God, and you just. You just go um, on the bike, or for me, it was on a bike. And if they, if we couldn't get it on the bike because it was too rough, the the, the support van would take the bike, and mm -hmm. she and I, we, we, I hooked up with a woman that we did the entire thing. We either walked it or biked it, mm -hmm. and yeah, it was. And I think that actually, really, that whole thing is what Isaiah kind of has in mind—that richness, right? When you pass through fire. You won't be burned. I mean, you won't be burned up, <laughs> but you will be refined. And when you pass through water, it will affect you. I'll, when you pass through the water, I'll be with you. So God travels with us through chaos. God doesn't end it. I mean, I, I think that's part of what we get the year. That's where the prosperity gospel doesn't fit. Dog shut that door. You know, it closes itself, and we're just going to let her stay out there. <laughs> she's so fickle and naughty. Um, she's curious. She's out. She's great. Very social. Yeah. Okay, um, I don't know if you noticed, God will cut up Rahab into pieces. That's not Rahab the prostitute. That's There's a sea monster called Rahab. Think of the Loch Ness monster, or think of like I don't know the the Kraken. Uh, so God made the Kraken for the sport of it, but the Kraken's bothering people, so God's going to chop up the. I mean, really, that's it. That's that's the images that we that we get. Um, John the Baptist. We're going to hear this in two weeks. In the wilderness, a voice calling out, "Prepare the way of the Lord." Right. Every valley shall be exalted and every high place made low. And, and this is the opening for 2nd Isaiah. 
which is the people are in Babylon, they're gonna go back to Jerusalem, and that is a really, uh, like, gravel road. Think about roads in uh, developing countries. And what God's gonna do is make it a super highway. So the way you make a super highway, right, is you strip mine mountains, and you take all that filled dirt and fill in valleys, and then you've got a wide highway. And the Gospels change it. The Gospels say, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, quote, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah says the voice of one calling, begin quotes, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So the quotes start at a different point. John the Baptist goes to the wilderness and calls, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah says, make the way of the Lord in the wilderness. In some ways, they're similar, right? They resonate, but they're slightly different. And of course, the whole goal here is to take the low places and build them up. And, and what God has in mind is so that people who are away from home can get home. What's interesting about that, right, is that's sort of like uh, taking uh, the world, uh, like, like, I don't know, the African national debt and forgiving it <laughs> so that low places are made even. Or that's like taking people who are built into, uh, are born into poverty and abuse and rehabilitating that so that the low places are made level. Who pays for that? The high places do. <laughs> that's how that works. Um, it's literal. It's literal, but it's also figurative so that people who find themselves away from home, from God's home, can make their way back. Come here, dog. <laughs> it's, I mean, really, this is amazing social justice stuff here. And it plays out on a terrain that's impossible because if you've been to Israel or Jordan, it's, it's not like Houston where it's flat. It's dramatically hilly. Right? I mean, think about Petra and think about going to Amman and Capernaum and up looking at the Golan Heights. I mean, there's snow in those mountains up there. And when you go to Jerusalem, well, you can't quite tell from that map, but Jerusalem is extremely, extremely topographically varied. I'm sorry, we're not laughing at you. I'm not funny. I'm not funny. So I'm glad you're not laughing at me. <laughs> Oh, I know. Oh, no, I know. I know. I know. They keep they're, peeking. They're just, yeah, they're, they're sweet. They're, they're the comic relief. Curious. Yeah, <laughs> we're the comic relief. What are those weird people doing in there? We get another image of God the shepherd, right? Where God carries the lambs. And uh, again, that's just a wonderful image. It's the oldest Christian image. Like I've said before, ours is unique because the lamb wants to go into God's arms. <laughs> You get to see the scale of God. And you know, it's interesting is the, the, gla the, the, the flowers fade and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord is forever. And God's sort of breath is what gives life and takes it away. And remember that that word breath is really the word spirit. So this is the spirit of the Lord that gives and takes away life. And boy, um, we get to hear things like... Um, 
God will not grow faint and will mount up on wings of eagles. And um, boy, that's why we have the Eucharist. There's something here that's really different from the rest of the Jewish Bible. This is probably the only true monotheistic book that we have. And you hear Judaism is the oldest monotheistic religion. I'm not sure that's true. Um, Some people argue Zoroastrianism is. It depends what kind of Zoroastrian scholar you think you are. But I I will tell you this. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were not monotheists. They were not. But second Isaiah absolutely is a monotheist. And think about how peppered throughout this. There's ridicule of idols and other gods. And here we get to hear at the very beginning of this Isaiah that God was first. <laughs> that there is no other god like God. The other gods aren't gods. I mean, those are the claims. Mm-hmm. We're used to the Bible saying there's no god like God. But that allows there could be other gods. Mm-hmm. Here we here that there is no other God, period. And we also hear that he's actively involved in the history of, of, of the people. Before that, all, all did the prophets seem to always be saying everything's bad. Yeah. But here he's, would always seem to be saying, Things are going to be bad, but I am going to bring you out. You are my people. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And we get to hear this image that God's going to irrigate the desert. (laughs) But God's able to take dry places and make new life there. When they talk about when the kitchen gods and the, you know, those kinds of things, that was pretty standard for that time, even among the Jews who were monotheistic and believed yeah, in God, they, they still had those things? I mean, let's, let's be a little bit honest. We don't believe in that, but we do. Because sometimes our computers, like all of a sudden, don't work. So what do we do? We unplug them and restart them. But we do have like a little bit of superstitious thinking regarding our own appliances you know and and i know why because they're not they're not linear sometimes my appliance like i was editing a word document yesterday and it kept freezing and so i would do a little bit of work and quickly save it before it could freeze and then i would close it and open it again and that's so non-linear you know i mean it it's bizarre There's almost like a spiritual entity to the thing. And we, yeah, we try not to make our computer mad because it'll delete our files, right? I mean, this <laughs> is like, so I think it's just thinking like that. It's, it's not like people are like, oh, I'm down to my cup, yeah. but it's sort of like, hey, sometimes weird stuff happens with like cups Almost and like beverages. superstitions. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, do you notice? we get to hear this, the suffering servant, right? And this is important. The first time we meet the suffering servant, it is definitely the nation of Israel. No question. Who is supposed to be a light to the nations, who's supposed to be a blessing to the world. So you remember when Abraham gets blessed by God, God says, I'll bless you and all the world will be blessed by you. Like Abraham is the satellite dish of blessing. 
So God's going to send the beam to Abraham, who's going to disperse it to everybody else. Again, this is totally against the prosperity gospel. God blesses us so that we can be blessings to others, which means that if we're taking blessings and hoarding them, we're misusing them. And notice that Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations, not quarantined in a monastic community. (laughs) So the world is not a bad, evil place that you're supposed to resist corruption from. It's a place that you are meant to be in the middle of transforming so that it has the light God intends. And that implies there will be some suffering. (laughs) But that's the nation of Israel. Now, now, what that means, right, if we take that literally, and, I'm, and I, we can get really nasty here, and I don't want to do that, we can say, okay, look, Israel is God's chosen people, so really the author's saying anybody who gets God at all is supposed to be doing this. Now, we could say Christians are the new Israel, and I, I, that's really bad thinking. I think what the author is trying to get us to think of is if you understand anything about God and larger life and righteousness and justice, then you're supposed to be a blessing to other people. Whether you're Cyrus or you're Zadok the high priest or you're Christian or Buddhist or Muslim, I'm going to be that widespread casting the net because that's how you're like to the nations. There's no strict conversion here, right? The, 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 the images talk about these pieces of larger life being shown to people who don't have it. The other thing we get is, hey, the things that happened in Jerusalem were not an accident. That God was involved in that. And so maybe that's just a reminder, hey, like God is not overcome by chaos. It's not that God is too weak or is bad, but hey, um, chaos still happens. And sometimes we can say it's punishment, but other times maybe it's, it's natural cause of the world we live in, right? I mean, when Hurricane Harvey came to Houston, I can't believe it was because anybody was being punished because they didn't pray enough or give enough money to church or something like that. The, the, the truth is, when you build your homes in a flood zone, floods are going to come. People thought that when um, the hurricane hit the, the New Orleans, that they would be punished. And that would be a lot easier to make that argument. <laughs> That's what they said about the AIDS epidemic. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gracious, I forgot about that. Yes, it's yes. true. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have people like Arthur Ashe, and so people thought, well, he must have done something to deserve it. Mm-hmm. He must have been a philanderer or, or gay, of which he was neither, right? Yeah, it became really, 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 really tough that way. We get to hear Cyrus is an instrument, um, an instrument of God. That's really interesting. Cyrus actually was a pretty, probably a pretty interesting guy, but interesting to think that people can be instruments 
of God. And strictly speaking, maybe that's not so bad if we think of whether what kind of music we choose to produce. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was he the only person that was used in this way? Well, uh, you know, other books are going to say Babylon is God's instrument or that Assyria is a chastening rod, but when the chastening's over, God's going to punish the rod. <laughs> for being haughty or arrogant or vain. We, I mean, we get that stuff. Right. Here we have Cyrus named by name. Yeah. And, they, and he didn't... Uh, Cyrus, the Persian Empire, I mean, Cyrus would last it until he sent the people back. And he, and he paid for them to go back. Um, yes. So I, I assume that he was just a very good man. He was an interesting monarch for sure, probably ahead of his time in terms of like human rights, um, respect, and absolutely the way he handled people was supporting their local economies. He thought that would make more money for the empire than dispersing them or doing a brain drain. But he, he required them to pray for the emperor too. I mean, that's the interesting thing. So he was a strong patron kind of person. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember. I'm I'm just going to double check this. You know, there is this thing. uh, Maybe maybe you're interested in this, maybe not. But um, there's something called the Cyrus Cylinder, and it's in the British Museum. And it's basically a cylinder with engraving about it. And it includes how it is that Cyrus conquered Babylon. And um, Babylon was a city with gates that were something, you know, the, the, not the Ishtar gate that's in the Pergamon Museum, but the external walls of Babylon were so wide that a chariot could drive on them and pull a U-turn. See, what they did is they, they made two walls and filled it in with trash and rubble, and then they paved them. And the, the gates, the city, uh, the Tigris River went through the city. Which meant that during a... I mean, you can't poison the Tigris River, right? So the other thing is there was arable land in the city, which meant it should have been siege-proof. Mm-hmm. The way that Cyrus took Babylon, you can read it in the book of Daniel, just in the middle of the night, the whole city falls, you know, um, is that Cyrus went out of view <laughs> and dug a canal around the city, and in the middle of the night, dammed the Tigris, it flew through the canal. They walked right into the middle of the city where the river used to be and took it without a single casualty. And that's in this, on the Cyrus cylinder. So that's like this superhuman, I mean, it's a military and engineering marvel, right, that he diverted a major river. Uh, but they walked through that water gate. And, and, and so that's the kind of way that he earned this almost supernatural reputation, right, is that he took... I mean, what's an impregnable city? It's sort of like the Germans going right over the Maginot line. Right? I mean, it was, nobody ever thought of that? Uh, well, no, and, and nobody thought of this either. And, and so he walks through and takes this, he takes Constantinople without losing a single life. Could you repeat how he did that? He diverted the Tigris River and then walked. The Tigris, then, 
the, like ditches around the city? Or yeah, here, I'll, I can draw you a diagram of how it looks. So, so imagine here's Babylon, this huge walled city, and the Tigris River flows through. Oh, okay. And there's like a, you know, there's like a portcullis, imagine, there, so you can't walk through that. Right. And here comes the water. Well, <laughs> Cyrus did one of those numbers and dammed it. Then this is really dry, and they just sort of walked oh, in, and yeah. there they were. <laughs> oh. It's sort of like the Trojan horse without the Trojan horse. <laughs> so Cyrus, did he, where did he come from? He's a Persian. He's Persian. Yeah, and if you're wondering, his loan word, the, the, the Persian word we all know the best, is the word paradise, which hmm. is a garden. Well, now, Zen and Zoriaster were Persian. Not Zen. Zen is Z the father of Zoroaster? No, uh, Zarathustra is. Okay. He's the prophet, or the, or he's also called Zoroaster. And they and were Persian. They ended up being Persian. They, he probably was, that person was probably originally a Hindu priest. Um, 900 BCE, maybe. So Cyrus would have been... Zoroastrian, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, interesting. Most of that religion we don't understand because the Zara the, the Zarathustra, the, the holy book, we don't have all of it, we just have parts. When Alexander took over, he kinda destroyed most of Persian religion as we know it. There are Zoroastrians in the world, right? Freddie Mercury was one of them. Um, but there's not many. There's just not. Again, this was like the most popular religion in the world at one point. But when the Greeks came through they, they they really wiped a lot of it out. There's, a, there's this other religion that's in Persia. Um, that's it is in India. The, I'm sorry? So, sorry. I'm trying to recall because right now I'm kind of foggy, but um, the other religion in Persia that's monotheistic, that. Um, it's Islam, I, but there's it's not that's, Islam. It's the. It's that one that they get persecuted for being. I'll drop that subject. In Persia? Well, so. if you think of it, let me know. Please. Yeah. So Cyrus could have had a monotheistic. Uh, it's possible. Explosion. It's possible. I will tell you, most people mistakenly believe that uh, Zoroastrianism is dualistic, that it's good versus evil and they're locked in this fight, and who knows who will win. Um, I, I, my understanding is that that is an illusion, but Ahura Mazda is going to pull it out. And um, to be honest, most contemporary Christians actually kind of think that way. It's God versus the devil, and they're locked. God will win eventually, but for now, it's this sort of struggle. And um, I would argue that's actually like a terrible way of understanding life <laughs> and the Bible. When we studied Revelation last year, it's just really clear that's not the case at all. Um, it's, it's an illusion we live into, but it's not. I mean, the, John says clearly it's an illusion. Uh, there's, there's nothing like that. Um, do you notice that God has tattoos? Because... Everybody's name is written on God's hand. <laughs> God's like a nursing mother who can never, ever leave um, 
God's people behind. Uh, why, um, why is um, when we read the first Isaiah, I mean, I mean, the people are being pounded on the head and there doesn't seem to be any redemption. And, and all of a sudden here in the second half, even though he's, he still keeps pounding them on the head sometimes, he's going to redeem them. Is, is this a philosophical change? And Contextual change for sure, right? So consider that the first Isaiah is writing during the Assyrian invasion, which didn't prevail over Judah, right? It's the Babylonians that did. And this guy clearly writing to people in Babylon who find themselves away from home, saying God's not done with you, God's going to bring you back and restore you. But what restoration is all about, restoration is not just about you doing your old thing, it's about being a light to the nations. so I think, you know, when you think about raising children or being an educator, if you only have one way of being, you're probably missing <laughs> the robustness that is human existence. Mm-hmm. So warning, comfort, purpose, all of those are different things that encompass human experience. But the, theme, the, the themes of the prophets up until this time seems to be very negative very warning based yes and i think part of it is trying to i think yeah and 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 i think it's interesting to think about um you can read all this stuff about gambling and about risk tolerance and things but in order for us to pursue a risk the reward has to be pretty high in general people our brains have evolved to be pretty risk averse unless the reward is tenfold, you know. In general, if people could invest $5 and make one, they won't do it. But if they can make five, well, then they'll start to maybe do it, right? There has to be a high enough profit margin, which I think says something to us that our reptilian brain is much more motivated by the stick than the carrot. Mm -hmm. So um, that may be it. And I don't know that you're hearing a reward here. I think you're hearing a promise of redemption yes. to live into. Yes. But it's not like, hey, be good and then I'll take you back. It's I'm taking you back and here's how you ought to go. <laughs> so that you'll enjoy it or do what I have in mind. Mm-hmm. But it's not a contingency. That's the interesting thing. And that's the problem, I think, with prosperity gospel and fundamentalist Christianity is that you get what you pay for. But God makes the rain fall and the just and the unjust, and even disobedient children are God's children like a nursing mother, and God's not going to leave him stranded. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, not I'll be with you if you pray. So it's interesting theology, yes. right? It's, it's, it's much bigger than we usually settle for. It changes. It, push, it, push, it pushes it into a different direction. I think so. I think so. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's very, very hopeful. It's like God is so much, again, God is so much bigger 
than like our frame of mind. This is an imagination stretcher saying, okay, everybody here is don't put God in a box, whatever. But this this book is saying don't even put God in the three-dimensional world because God's a multi-dimensional entity. So, so start to to grow your imagination. This book's almost saying like, if you can't see it, it's not because God isn't doing it, it's because you can't see it. <laughs> So you might have to use your mind's eye or grow your mind's eye or put context lenses on your mind's eye. And that's where we get to hear this great image again. And, and Darlene's brought in the John August Swanson version of what's called the Peaceable Kingdom. It doesn't name all the pairs that we got back in Isaiah 11, right? But again, if you can't imagine the, the um, wolf lying down with the lamb, that's your problem, <laughs> Because God's going to do that. Put a different way, right? The, the, the Tutsi will lay down with the Hutu. And the National Democratic Socialists will lay down with the person wearing the Jewish star. That's hard. The others, I can imagine. That's just hard. It's really hard. It's hard. Right? That's like George Wallace will lay down with Harriet Tubman. You, you make it as hard as you can, I think is the point, right? Jerry Falwell will lie down with Osama bin Laden. Well, they're about the same person. I mean, so, you know. <laughs> but you, 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 you pick what you, what, you, what you want, or you pick who's hard for you, right? You'll lay down with your mother-in-law. <laughs> there you go, right? We all have our own. And, it, and, and not choke her in her sleep. I mean, right? Like you'll actually be able to rest together. Like you're, you'll be able to rest in the presence, like the intimate presence of somebody who winds up your adrenaline and cortisol. Again, we don't do stuff like that because that can't happen. But that's what this book is saying not just that it can happen, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. This is an image of reconciliation that's just beyond us. Because yeah. we can't imagine how, a, how could Dietrich Bonhoeffer lie down with Adolf Eichmann. And since we can't imagine that, we almost we just put it out of God's capability when the, the book is saying that's going to happen. I want to believe that. You know, I want to truly believe that. I mean, I do intellectually, but there's a part of me that just goes... I mean, I... I sometimes don't even want to believe it because, because that's such a challenge to my worldview mm-hmm. that you get what you pay for and you earn and you deserve things. Mm-hmm. And I, I almost think there's a... For me, there's this interesting place because... For me, what's compelling about this diagram is not even about Hutu and Tutsi people. It's about family relationships that are just broken as hell. And there's, there's that, that um, song, Heal My Unbelief. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I've heard a couple of attacks that I think are interesting as for us to practice that. Is God doesn't require us to be willing all the time. But if we're not willing to be made willing, then then there's there's there, there's some then God is going to have a time working with us. 
So I think what's interesting to think about is maybe we can say, listen, there are people in my life who have hurt me so much or who have affected my mentality or my life so much. I can never be reconciled with them. I can't even imagine it. Okay, well, God's going to do that after you die then. And maybe our spiritual journey is to make peace with the later, even if we can't now. There's people I don't want to be reconciled with after I die. The hurt is just too much. And there's nothing they could do to take that away from me. So forgiveness, right, is this thing where we say, I am who I am, and in some ways I've made peace with that. It doesn't even have to be grateful, but I've made peace with who I am, whether I was abused or whatever it is. I've made peace with that. But reconciliation means I'm going to have a future with an abuser. And, and that's really interesting what he said in the video. I've never heard it quite like this before. That's what it means to suffer because in order to be reconciled with somebody, you have to absorb the hurt they gave you and you can't give it back to them. That's very, very different from the way Christians read this book, which is Jesus was our whipping boy and took our spanking. God has to punish somebody and Jesus took your punishment. That's not the read he offered. The read he offered is, in order to be reconciled in any relationship, the hurt person absorbs the hurt. Which I think is very, I hate it, but it's very sensible. I mean, it's true. Uh, that's the only way we can go forward together is if one person chooses, and, and I'm positive the author is still talking about God's chosen people, not exclusively Jewish people, but the people who choose to hear God and follow, that's what it means to be reconciled with the world, is that there's times where we cannot, where we can be maybe righteously indignant, but we can't be vengeful if we want a future, Right? So I think what we often do is we hear he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and his appearance was so marred and we say, oh, that's about Jesus getting beat up. And really that's what happens anytime there's reconciliation. And to put yourself out there with somebody who's hurt you before is like being a lamb led to the slaughter. Now, look, I think we get it. There's, if your husband beats you, and you keep going back there for the Lord, you probably just shouldn't keep going back there. You know? However, I would be talking out of both sides of my mouth if I said you should never, ever try to be reconciled with someone who's abused you. I actually had a lady who worked for me, and I think her dad had abused her mother, and she went back and they were reconciled. And I don't know all the steps, but they were reconciled. And like it worked out. My thinking is, you don't have to do that. You don't. And I think that's right. I think if you do it, you ought to choose to do it, not have the church pushing you into it. So I almost think the church should say, don't do it unless God calls you to do it. But as a church, we're here to support you being separate and taking care of yourself. So it's, I mean, it's really messy that way. But then how will we be reconciled when we get to heaven or wherever we're going? I don't know how. I, I just I sort of think Isaiah is saying if we can't do it on our own, 
God will help you take care of that. <laughs> you may not want it, and that doesn't matter. God's going to do what's best for us. That's comforting, isn't it? That's very comforting. It's sometimes a little upsetting, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's if we choose to believe that reconciliation with our enemies is ultimately best for us. I'm still 50-50 on how I feel about that, even though in my head I know that's right. Um, I think the goal is, then can we live into that now instead of later? And how we live into it is really, really tough, right? Because sometimes to be reconciled to somebody, I want an apology. And I can tell you there are people who I want that from who can never give it to me. And I am really mad about that. But they can't. And what do we do with that? Well, the truth is, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're mad or you retaliate or you're vengeful, you absorb that abuse. I mean, it is in your bones one way or another. So you can try to act like it's not and be an angry, cruel person, and then it just gets deeper down in your bones. That's where this is really interesting prophetic text, isn't it? In some ways it's religious, and in other ways it just describes human experience better than I ever could. What's interesting is that there's, if you, if you look backward, right, there's people we've given second, third, fourth, fifth chances to, and there's people we've given one chance to, and it's not always linear why we did one here and seven here. We just did. <laughs> I used to teach, and there were kids that I had an attraction to. I don't mean, like, physically, but I just was attracted to certain students, and I couldn't even make sense of it. Sometimes they were the best and brightest and most thoughtful students, or the ones who thought like I did. Sometimes they were just hot messes, and I, I could spend a lot of time trying to figure out attraction, but I don't think it makes sense. It just is. Uh, so the question is, maybe... Can we live into that more when we don't feel like it? How does, how does um, Babylon fit into all this? Well, I think you said something really interesting. Uh, hey, their ways are not God's ways, and things like militarism and consumer culture are like not, not great. Right. Wow, we could just apply that straight to our world, right. <laughs> including ourselves, yes. which is really tough. Um, I mean, I would tell you Cyrus is God's instrument, but boy, they just gobble Babylon right up. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure that there's a substantive change. So, part of it, I think, we have to consider is like, what does it mean to be like to the nations, and how do we do that? Uh, and hopefully, that's a social critique that we're able to bear. I mean. You know, my last parish, I'll tell you, um, was a great parish. It was in uh, Coronado, California, and probably two-thirds of it were former Navy families because they bought houses there in the 70s when they were affordable, and now they'd gone there and retired. And I remember uh, they were very happy with my preaching, except when I talked about the isms, like racism, sexism, and ageism, and I would always say prophetically, patriotism and that would send two or three of them up the wall like they just could not hear that because patriotism was always good but i contend to you that any word that ends in ism is always bad <laughs> idealism is not great <laughs> 
Pessimism is not great. Optimism, not great. Realism, not even great. Hinduism, Judaism, these are words we judge as Christianity. See here, we don't have ism at the end. <laughs> I mean, the isms are not good words. And patriotism, right, is service can't, maybe I should call it jingoism, you know, that's because no one uses that word, it's safer. But they thought we're supposed to be patriots, and, and okay, but if patriotism is a, is a worship thing, it's misguided. But, but folk, I had a guy almost physically threaten me because I said this, now I was younger, you know, and I was going to be a prophetic preacher, and I knew this was the thing we had to contend with. But they had this event every 4th of July called Armed Forces Sunday, and I guarantee you if I'd worn an American flag chasuble and put one on the Lord's table, they'd have been super happy, and we all could have had sparklers, and it would have been great. And it would have been a day that we worshipped ourselves, which is wrong. <laughs> so I think we have to contend with that. You know, the, 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 the truth is we have the both and, and it's really hard when you're a military career person and you're a captain to accept that. It's a lot easier when you're an admiral. And I'll tell you the difference between admirals and captains is that admirals are self-critical and captains can't be. That's why they didn't make it to admiral, because they couldn't see the warts. The admirals were able to say, I love the military warts and all, but here are the dang warts. The captains said, I love the military, period. It's perfect. And we can't criticize because that hurts. It makes us sort of look bad, you know. And in those couple of times when I got in trouble, fortunately, my mentoring rector, who was a Navy Reserve chaplain and had been drafted to Vietnam, said, hey, the reason I went to Vietnam is so he could talk like he feels his conscience is guiding him to. And that was an interesting thought. He earned that credential? He, he was able, as a military person, to say, hey, I get your military concern, but we fought for free speech. Like, that's one of our things. And I will tell you, I've toned it down a little bit since I've come here, not because I'm less irrelevant, because I think it's helpful, actually, to be less polarizing so many people can draw, hopefully, more helpful conclusions. Now, there's times when I am... Polarizing. I mean, I remember, I nobody said anything to me after it, but I've said things about Muslims being real human beings, and hey, prostitutes. Really, you should be prosecuting the Johns, not the prosecute prostitutes. And nobody said anything to me. At, well, one person said to me. Two people have said they didn't appreciate me considering Muslims to be human beings. But that's really it. You know, I've never had somebody come after me here after a sermon. Um, a different context, you know. But I haven't criticized how much money we spent on the lunar mission either. It was a junk ton of money. I don't know if you know that. Right. <laughs> Enough to make a Harvard University in every one of the 50 states. Coming back to Vietnam, I, you know, I, and I don't, um, I've got a kind of a different view than, than Military because we came back and we weren't we did we didn't get any parade or anything else. Yeah. And I saw so much corruption because I happened to be in a place where the cor the cor the corruption would be happening. And so I you know I just everybody whose eyes were open saw it. And to be honest, the the wider your eyes opened, 
the higher the chance you were going to get killed in duty. Well, mm -hmm. they, um, there was uh, there was some black marketing going on, and I and I saw the army jeeps come and pick up the stuff and take it to warehouses, and I re and I made a mistake. I reported to the MPs, mm -hmm. and that evening I had to stay on pace because we had some things going on. My apartment where I was staying at got shot up. Wow. Yeah, he'd been there. He'd... See, this is interesting because I had my dad and my uncle both got drafted out of their family of 10. And uh, my dad had these interesting thoughts, right? Like that a communist is a man trying to feed his children. Mm -hmm. If you think that, it's really hard to shoot them. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then they might shoot you first. I mean, this is sort of the deal. And my uncle, who was also on the front, talked about how he should have brought back a bunch of silk and things like that. I mean, looted these people. And the reason I think he said that was because there was no reason to be there. If he'd been personally enriched, at least there would have been something. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are really interesting to hear about, you know. Um, how do people make meaning when they're doing things that their conscience naturally objects to? Killing other people, we're socialized, is wrong. Like, it's not okay to do it. And uh, it was interesting, one of the guys in Coronado, who was a Navy aviator that was shooting Vietnamese people left and right out of his F-14, um, he said, boy, I didn't ever pray for forgiveness because I knew I was going to go do it again tomorrow. I just prayed for the strength it took to follow my orders. I mean, that's really interesting to think about. And, and in some ways, then, what do we do with this? I, I, I just think it's so dang murky, right? I mean, getting orders in the military is about passing through the waters. You know, and my dad, who is really struggling with his Alzheimer's now and basically living in Vietnam every day of his life, he, he just constantly talks about this all the time, every three minutes, it's a recurring thing, how if... His job was to protect Americans, and that's what he did. And, um, you know, uh, when you're in that position, what are your choices? Like, this is complicated stuff, really complicated. You can't really be a conscientious objector and survive. And when, you know, your orders are to your people, that's essentially where your duty is. So, so how do we come back to this? I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a non-combat veteran. I've never been in active duty. I've never sought it out. My brother's in the military. He's an active duty combat veteran. Um, they sing the national anthem before Thanksgiving dinner. That's like what they do. Me, I'm sort of like, that's weird. I mean, again, I, and, and, and I do happen to love this country and believe it's the best place to live in the world, but I'm also very critical of it. And so you it's... You see the wars. I can, and, and in some ways I get, I've never been in combat, so I've got a limited perspective. I see, I, I don't think just because you haven't been there, that doesn't mean you can't understand absolutely but i think in my preaching to veterans i have to leave space for something i don't know and and to be honest 
if I'd been, it's not like I would have completely understood veteran experience anyway. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, one of those interesting sorts of things. I think what we get here, though, is, is to, to be honest with you, the, the last thing we get here is one of the hardest things for me. To, it's helpful and hardest, right? It sort of says, you know, my ways are not your ways. As water goes up and comes down and does this, my word won't return to me void, right? And so it's really interesting to think the analogy is that we may not see immediate results, but essentially God is building up the water table for growth and that our ways are fixed on immediate outcomes and that God's will ultimately won't be thwarted. And, and that's really, really tough because when I think about this diagram, I think about relationships in which people reject me or they reject care and roots, and what does that mean? And I'll just tell you very obliquely that everybody I know who has adopted somebody on foster care, I won't talk about infants, but I'll talk about foster care, has had a, oh my God, what have I done moment that could have lasted for years, that moment. Because they don't see growth in the wilderness and they have irrigated their life's blood into that desert. And we get this sort of promise that somehow it mattered. <laughs> it's just sort of tough. Beyond our imagination, because when we can't see the water, the aquifer being built up, or we can't see shoots. I mean, I read this quote two, two weeks ago that says, the poet or the prophet or the saint is the person who waters the asphalt expecting plants to grow. And that's, that seems like that's what God does. God waters asphalt and eventually God's going to break through it. And you see asphalt. The weeds grow in between it with actual plants. We have little flowers, little tiny little wildflowers. You see it after that's already happened. <laughs> and what's interesting is the, the poet can see that in the places where they're pouring water on non-broken asphalt. And God can see that. And that, I think, is the interesting image here. And it's vexing as hell, and it's hopeful and wonderful. I mean, it's... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I worked in inner cities for the whole 30 years of my career. And one time I was in the allergies office and uh, they called my name and I went back and a gentleman came out, an older man, and he took, and he took my hand and he said, basically the story was, he had a son who, boy, I, I cannot remember who he is, I don't know who he was. He said, you made a difference in his life. He dropped out of gangs. He stopped using drugs. Mm -hmm. And I never... Saw I it. Remember, I, I never saw it. I would have just died and gone to heaven because I was struggling so hard to keep that community straight and going. Um, but I'll never forget that man saying that to me. He said, is he working now? He has a full-time job. He's married. He has a child. Yeah. And I never... 
You're going to hear this a little bit. I, I can't help but bleed this through. Obviously, if you're here on Sundays, you you got to hear a preview of what I'm thinking about. <laughs> but, um, I, I think we're going to do this for Epiphany. There's this great book called um, Everyday Liturgy or something and how it is that you find a liturgy or you reflect a liturgy in your everyday practice. And um, there's this really interesting thing where we, I think part of the reason adults are so taken with these phones is the same way children are. There's something happening all the time. And our brains really want action. And I'll tell you, I got to the point within the last year where I'm like, I'm so tired of cooking because I have to do it every day. And it's not always exciting. And I will tell you, laundry, oh my gosh, is not my thing. And after a while, unloading and doing the dishes is not my thing because you're just going to have to do them again, you know. And, and this book sort of says, what's this interesting thing, right, is that that's what life is made of, is doing the same thing over and over and over and again. And it's about how we do it. And one way we could do it is pretend like that's not the case by being constantly distracted and looking for news. And another way we could do it is by saying, okay, I am going to make this dinner for the 15th time. <sighs> And I'm going to be here while I do it, being present in these things. So one of these things that this lady talks about is it used to be her first thing she would get up and do is look at her phone. And for Lent one year, she made her bed instead. Um, and she was a previous non-bed maker. And she did it knowing she was going to unmake the bed every day uh, with this sense of purpose and being invested in normal, normal things. And so I think one way we could read this is watering the cement is looking for impossible places and putting all of our life energy into it and being frustrated. Another way is watering the cement is really just about not having extreme faith or life-changing retreats, but just being extremely faithful in those places where we see the outcomes or not. God is actually building up the aquifer. There's this fundamental trust that being an extremely faithful person is God's way and makes a difference. Sometimes in life, that's the only thing that's going to keep you moving forward if you maintain that, mm-hmm. that thinking. When you fall, <laughs> so, you, know, you just have to... When I was in Saudi, um, I worked for Bechtel, and when I first got there, there was an English guy um, who was uh, uh, who I was working with, and he had been all over the world on, on construction jobs. He told me, he said, first lesson you need to learn is establish a routine. You must have a routine. Yeah. He, and, and you know he would eat the same thing every day mm-hmm. and come in at the same time. You must have a routine or you will not survive in this place. Yeah, and Admiral, Admiral McRaven says that. He was this Navy SEAL that became Admiral, right? And his speech was, make your bed. You've accomplished an important task, you're ready to accomplish others. Whatever it is, right, what she's suggesting is not just that we live by a routine, but that we're present in the routine. Right. And that hopefully the routine guides us to just sort of being present in the world. And, and that's where, again, I think we could hear this and say, like, let's look for extreme, let's smuggle Bibles into communist Russia, or let's go to Saudi Arabia and preach the gospel. Let's look for energy and adrenaline and cortisol and make a huge difference in the world and get our heads chopped off. Or let's be faithful people and do the daily grind and feed our families 
and find God there. And in everything we do, be grateful. Give thanks in all things. I think so. Thank you for this food that I have to fix. Yeah. And thank you for letting me have a dishwasher. <laughs> and, and that's what is an interesting thing. I almost think this is the best thing. This is in the morning prayer, right? My ways are not your ways. Mm -hmm. And so how do we make our ways like God's? It's by being extremely faithful. Next week will be third Isaiah, and we'll get to hear how that's a little bit different. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you.